This recording is brought to you by the Goodness and Kindness Foundation. If you're walking down the street, smile to a stranger, do a good thing for someone else, let's all strive to make our impact in this world order to make the world a better dwelling place for everyone. One small candle can light up a very dark room. So spread as much positivity and kindness with everyone and your surroundings so that way we can make the world a better and happier and healthier place. Hey everyone, I'm super, super excited to have with us a very special guest on Founder Stories. Today we have the absolute honor to host our dear friend, Danny Lesham. Danny is a serial founder, having founded two companies that are actually acquired, one by Microsoft and the other one by Wix, and is also part of another startup that too was acquired. Currently today, Danny is the managing director of an incredible fund called In3, and we are going to get into all of that. Besides that, he is someone that is intellectually honest, a very, very good guy, and he's someone that every time so far the minimal interaction I've had with him, I've left inspired and definitely, definitely learned something. So I am very excited to have Danny here with us today. So we are able to learn from him, not just about startups and building companies and investing companies, but also how we can become the best version of ourselves possible to learn his daily practice to learn what he does, that he works on himself. So that way we can take some of those lessons and apply them to our own life. So Danny, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Brian, good to be here. You're welcome. And it's a real, real honor. I have heard a lot of incredible things about you from multiple different types of sources. Um, I've heard about the impact you're having in the startup community in Tel Aviv, in Israel. So I am very excited to learn about different things about you. But I want to start off with, I would like to know, what are your values and your value framework? And how do your values, whatever they may be, personable or business values, how do they play out in your day-to-day interactions? And specifically, um, related to business, how your personal values play out in your business life? So, um, well, it's a tough one. So, I'm trying to think out how to best approach this, because I don't think I have a defined and structured set of values. I'll tell you a few things that I believe in and how they affect what I do. So, I think one thing I learned, I'm a technical person in background. One thing I learned over my career is that relationships matter. And as a very, um, let's say, analytical person, it's very easy to ignore this. It's very easy to always sort of like ignore the fact that every situation we're dealing with actually has humans on both ends of the interaction. And these humans have something more than just pure incentives. So one thing I try to, I care about a lot. And I think some people who know me sort of find this surprising that that I actually care about this is creating positive interactions with the people that I either continuously or even, you know, meet just for one occasion. So this implies a lot of different things. Like one thing you mentioned before, intellectually honest. I don't think anyone ever said this about me, but I actually really like uh, the way you phrased it because being intellectually honest is not the default for most people. Like most people, it's very easy to not say what you really think because, you know, you don't want to hurt the other person. You don't want to come off as either arrogant or, you know, not nice. I actually think that saying what you think and being very, very honest and candid is a basis for a good relationship. So I'd like to think that um, people know where they stand with me. And this is all part of the same framework, but I I think it creates a different kind of conversation. And some people are not used to it. And sometimes it comes off, uh, you know, it's like an extreme version of being an Israeli, right? Because for an American, it's always, uh, it's like dialing up to 11, uh, the Israeli experience, like the experience of working with Israelis. But I, I think this is what I owe the other person I'm interacting with. So that's just like one value. Um, another thing I care deeply about is let's say freedom, but freedom to be able to choose what I do, to be able to choose who I work with. I think like these two things, working with people that I want to work with and working with them in a way that feels natural and candid and honest is basically how I try to conduct my day to day, whether in personal relationships or in professional ones. That's a long answer to a tough question. Well, so then I got to ask you. Within your startup career, so right now you're blessed to have both of those things that you could actually play them out in your life. You have the freedom to choose and you have also the ability to create that positive interaction you have with somebody. But if you're going to flip the script, let's say, for example, towards a startup founder or even yourself when you were a founder. So how do you create that experience? Um, One, that sense of freedom, you know, 
they choose and or create that culture around there um, and also the positive interaction. First of all, the number one choice you have to make is who you work with. And for me, I always find it very, very strange when I hear how founding teams meet and get into this roller coaster with people they haven't had uh, like a deep relationship prior to the startup. Like for me, I can't imagine myself doing this. It means that there is a, like a really, really short list of people I, I can work with as co-founders. And this, by the way, this applies to startups I founded, and it also applies to, let's say, to Intree. Intree, in Intree, we're four partners. We all know each other prior to doing in three together. Each of us worked with others for long periods of time. It kind of limits in that sense, right? because you're limited to the people you already know and worked with in various other endeavors. But once you do work with that person and, and choose to work with them, then there's much less uncertainty. So like the people I work with know me well enough to know what I care about. And I know them to know uh, well enough to know what they care about. And then it's just like any other relationship. That's the answer. In that sense, it's not that I do anything in particular. It's not that I actively create a mechanism for, for everyone to do what they want and so on. It's just that you choose the people so that there is alignment and they know what I care about and they can live with that and I know what they care about and then so on. You wrote a blog post um, to a similar concept like this and you wrote over there and I'm not going to be able to repeat it verbatim, but the general concept of what you wrote was that when you're looking to invest in a startup, right? So a startup, two co-founders, for example, that met at a co-working event are less likely than two co-founders that worked together at a previous startup together. Right. What I meant there is the way I look at it is I studied probability theory. So I sort of like the basic framework I use in my life, business or actually personal as a probabilistic framework. So the way I think about it is what's the signal once I hear a founding team met in a meetup. So it's a bad signal because um, why would they have to meet their co-founder in a meetup? The best explanation would be that they don't have anyone they worked with for long periods of time that they can start the company with. And then there are several reasons why this could happen. One is they never worked with really, really good people, right? And that's a bad signal because usually good people work in places where other very good people work. And so they have the opportunity to, to meet each other and get to know each other. So one option is that this person never worked in a place where excellent people work. Another option is that they actually did work in that place, but they couldn't find anyone else where both people find each other like mutually excellent. So, so that's a bad signal about their abilities. And so the best case scenario for me would be two excellent people who worked in an excellent place and they're sort of like validating each other. That's a really good signal. And anything else is, is a bad signal. On top of that, there is you know, the fact that being a co-founder in general is a really, really tough thing. It sucks. I don't think I ever heard anyone that describes their startup experience as uh, positive in the, uh, let's say, in the shallow sense, right? It could be a deep positive experience when you look at it in hindsight or think of it as like doing something which is impactful. But on the day to day, if you like measure your happiness at a single moment, it's usually not a very fun experience. Once you have other co-founders, it's like being in a relationship where you're constantly struggling and Doing this with someone you don't know intimately and care about, and you have that mutual appreciation and respect and shared experiences, it's really, really difficult. It's just statistically, I don't really understand how this would work. It's like getting married to a person you met randomly in the street. Like, what are the odds that this would work? So like all these together, it's a bad signal, putting yourself in a harder than needed situation. It's not something that you want to do as a founder, and it's not something that I think you want to get involved with as an investor if you have other choices. It's interesting you mentioned that because I wonder, you know, one of the biggest causes for early stage startup failure is founder disagreements. So I wonder if there is a study that has assessed the companies that failed or didn't work out due to founder disagreements was how did the founders meet? First of all, there's a lot of confounding factors, right? Because it could be that the founders don't have shared experience before founding the company and then, you know, they start fighting them and so on. But then you could argue that the reason they're fighting is because there is an underlying uh, variable, which is the founder's abilities. And if they found each other in a meetup, then again, thinking from a realistic framework, you can again, assume that they have lower ability than founders that know each other for a long time. So that's one thing. Another thing is it's just that all these factors are really, really difficult to consider independently. 
It's like there is a saying, the number one reason, I always laugh at these uh, surveys where they try to list the reasons why startups fail. Because the number one reason startups fail you know, in all these surveys is that they run out of money. But for me, saying that a startup failed because it ran out of money is like saying that it's not the fall that kills you, it's a sudden stop in the end. Right? Because then the question is, why did they run out of money? And you could argue, like, why did the founders not get along? Why did they argue? And these things are less popular in successful startups. Like if all your KPIs are up and to the right, then founders and you know founding teams can hate each other and, and get along just fine. It's only when things don't really work out where all these problems start surfacing. The bottom line is that usually the number one reason startups fail is lack of product market fit and everything else is derivative. If you have product market fit, the founders could hate each other and everything will go along just fine. And if they don't have that, then, you know, the founders might know each other for a long while and then start arguing because nothing works. And then each has a different uh, idea, like how to fix it. You've had um, three sets of different co-founders at three different times. You had at Kadaro, you had at OpenREST, and now currently at N3. Um, yeah. So then when you guys need to have a hard conversation or you do have disagreements or you find yourselves not aligned, what do you guys do to make sure they do get aligned and you're able to overcome the hardship and disagreements or anything else that comes together with it? One thing which is always very, very helpful is to have a structure for how to reach a decision when uh, all else fails. And ideally, you never want to actually use this, but having this thing is very helpful just because you know there is a default. So for example, in OpenREST, we actually had a, a really uh, funny mechanism. So uh, in some cases, if you have an odd number of founders, then you can do things by vote, uh, like if, if push comes to shove. But in OpenREST, we were two founders, two equal founders. So when we just started OpenREST, we had the question of like, what's the default? What's like the worst thing happens and we, we can't agree. What do we do? And then um, we decided we're both poker players. So we decided that we'll have in the articles of association of the company of, of OpenREST, we'll have that if we ever uh, reach a disagreement and we can't resolve it any other way, then we'll play a poker match and this will decide what we're doing. Uh, we never had to use this. The funny thing is, the real threat was that if you do this uh, and you lose, you actually lose twice, right? You lose the decision <laughs> and then also the other guy is going to laugh at you for eternity for being the worst player. But this was sort of like default. If we couldn't reach a decision, we'll do this. And our lawyers actually insisted that we don't write a poker game in the Articles of Association. So we use the euphemism, um, a game of luck. It was very, very clear to, for both of us that uh, we're going to play a poker match. And so that's open resting. In In3, um, the first thing we did when we started In3 is that we, uh, we decided on a protocol. We have like a protocol and it's non-binding in the sense that it's not in the articles of In3 or anything like that, but it's something that we all agreed on. And it kind of lists all the edge cases that we couldn't, like all the, say, the reasonable edge cases and how we would resolve them. And I think in that case, we actually had to look at the protocol at, at least once. But again, this was like all in really, really good terms, right? In some cases, you just can't reach a decision. And in, in a fund, it's much more difficult than in a company because in a company, eventually, most companies have a CEO. Uh, and then eventually, like even if they're equal founders, it's pretty obvious that the CEO has to make the final call or whatever protocol the founders decide on. But in a fund, it's more difficult. What are the protocols you have in the fund? So for example, so we were four partners in In3. And one thing, we really didn't want to have investment decisions made by consensus like we, we thought that like based on our past personal portfolios not all of us thought the same on every company we met in the past and, and some of our you know best personal outcomes uh, were for each of us were in companies where the other three did not necessarily agree whether they should invest or not so we really didn't want to be one of these funds where uh, you sort of have to convince everyone and they get a consensus for two reasons. One, we, we actually didn't think that this would be the mechanism to create the best outcome. We wanted to be able to make contrarian investments, even within the fund. And the second is, think of it like from a mechanism design point of view, the problem with consensus is that it creates politics, right? Because if I know that I have to convince everyone, it incentivizes me to try to trade these things. Like you go with me on this one and I'll go with you on the next one. And very soon you turn this into a game of politics. So the mechanism we decided for making investment decisions, uh, we call it crazy, not insane, which means um, it's enough, like out of the four of us, it's enough for two 
to green light an investment for it to take place. And it doesn't really matter what the others say. So it could be two people saying hesitant uh, yes and two people saying a very, very hard no and will invest. It's not a majority and you don't need three, obviously, but you actually don't even need two over one or two over zero. It's just like two yes and we invest. Uh, on the other end, we didn't want to have one person saying yes and all the rest saying no, because again, just looking at our history, when this happened in the past, usually this wasn't a good investment. We went with two is enough. And by the way, this creates friction, right? Because first of all, it means that you can very, very uh, freely and honestly say no, right? Because you know that the investment is not dependent on you specifically. But you can say no, like I mean, even two people can say no and the investment still takes place. So it doesn't create an incentive to be dishonest or to not say what you really think. But it does create scenarios where I can think of at least one, maybe even two investments that we did where two people were like, they were on the fence leaning towards yes. And two people thought that this is a horrible investment and we ended up investing the money. And you know, the people thinking this is a horrible investment obviously didn't like it, but that's the mechanism. And how did that investment do? Um, you know, it's still early. The thing about Intree exists for a year and a half. Um, and as you know, 2022 wasn't the best year in terms of, I want to say early stage companies, but actually companies at any stage. And the thing about VC, and, and this is actually something that I find very, very difficult to accept, is that the timelines are really, really long. And, you know... Everyone says it, and um, I think we got used to, let's say in the three years ending in 2021, we got used to very, very short cycles. So it's sort of like it, originally, you know, it was very clear to everyone that in order to create a huge company to be very, very successful, it takes seven to 10 years at least, sometimes much longer. And in like in, let's say, 2019 to 2021, this paradigm didn't really exist. So you had really, really quick unicorns forming and then, you know, even exiting and sort of created the illusion that you can actually create a really large company very quickly and that the feedback cycles can be very, very short, but that's, that's not the case apparently. And, and again, the problem with VC is that you make a decision and it takes 10 years until you know, like whether you made the, the right decision at the time and combine that with, are you familiar with what they call the J curve? Yes. All right, so, so the, the recap basically means that the bad apples surface faster. So when you start a fund, you very, very quickly learn which are like the, the real mistakes that you made or the investment that didn't work out. And then the, the good ones take a lot of time to reveal themselves. And then the problem is that as a founder, and again, this is something that I'm not used to. I'm used to, as, as a founder, I'm used to very, very quick feedback cycles. I'm used to having a lot of small wins. You want to have a lot of small wins in, in whatever you do. And I'm used to having a lot of leverage, sort of like a lot of tech leverage. VC is the complete opposite of all these. You, you have very, very long feedback cycles. Um, you hardly have any wins. Like you actually, you feel a lot of pain. You see companies struggling. And especially because of the J curve, it takes a lot of time till you start seeing the wins. And that's combined with having zero tech leverage, like practically zero tech leverage. So it's a really, really different mindset. And it's, it's something that I, as an ex-founder, uh, I'm struggling with. So how are you overcoming and working on that struggle? Um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, again, you need to know what game you're playing. And in many cases, the thing about a lot of things in life, as I gain more experience, is that there is a very, very sharp dissonance between like knowing something or like knowing something in theory and getting um, like a strong feel and intuition based on your personal experience. So one example I always give is that there's this book by Ben Horowitz, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. So personally, I, like, I hate all these startup books, all these, uh, I consider it almost like in, in the same level of self-help books, which I despise. But this book specifically is it's just like it captures something in the psychological aspects of being a founder that is um it, it captures some real truth and the problem is that i've I found out that um if suggest founders i meet or invest in if i give them the book or, or suggest they read it they read it and they understand it on some you know cognitive level but they don't really understand it they don't sympathize with it until maybe three, four years later. And then they sort of like reread the book and then like it clicks. But it's always in retrospect. Like you can't really, although there's some great advice there, you can't really use it. 
the only thing you can do with it is just read it in retrospect and say, oh, actually, it was actually right. In that sense, it doesn't help you. So the same thing applies to whether it's being a founder or being a VC. Like I knew about the J curve. I knew about having no tech leverage. I knew about not having all these, uh, you know, quick wins, but you actually need to experience this to actually understand it. And I, I think right now, after about a year and a half doing this, and again, I was an angel investor for a few years before, but I, I think there is a difference. So I think now after about a year and a half doing this, I think it this point, something clicked and I actually understand some of the things, you know, people always talk about in these areas. You know, it's funny because like, like you mentioned, everyone talks about these things and we all know about it, but for mm -hmm. some reason, you know, consciously we are naive to these things and thinking to a certain degree that they won't affect us or that we will stand above it, right? That we will be able to overcome it. And we don't think about it. the same way they talk about it, say, for example, emerging managers, right? 90% of them are not going to be do a fund too, or they're not going to be able to raise their first fund, or it takes such a long time to raise their first fund. But you know what? Everybody has that blind optimism, which is necessary, and they have that positivity bias, which is also necessary in order to go ahead and do the job. Same thing with founders. Everyone talks about building companies very hard, but people are like, no, nah, I'm going to be able to do it. So you, you need to have that mindset of like to a certain degree, but then when reality hits, you have to also be ready to face it and deal with it. I think there's also another question, which I, I think a lot of VCs don't really ask themselves, or at least they don't honestly answer themselves, which is, what is my alpha? Like, what's the rationale for me doing this fund and for my LPs to give me money rather than any other fund that they have an opportunity to invest in? And I think this is like a really, really tough question because in most cases, it doesn't really have an answer. And I think one of the things, like as time goes by, I think I understand, I, I have a better thesis about what my alpha is if I have one, right? So it's, and again, it's very, very difficult to even know whether you have one or not, because it just takes a lot of time. So what do you think makes in three different than any other venture fund? And what would you say is the alpha there? The thing about being different is, you know, the world of funds is really, really large. So being different, it's not about necessarily about being different, but more about being uh, specialized. So first of all, Intui is, is an Israeli founders fund. So we invest in any early stage company that has some connection in their founding team to Israel. So it could be like the textbook example would be an Israeli company, obviously like targeting global markets, but like an Israeli registered company where the founders are Israeli and the HQ is in Israel, right? So that's like the textbook example for a company that N3 would want to invest in. But this could also go as far as a company registered in the US uh, where the HQ is in the US and uh, one out of three founders is an ex-Israeli, right? So that's also something in our domain. But we wouldn't invest uh, in a company where, you know, in a US company where all three founders are just Americans with no connection to Israel. So in that sense, we're specific. So that already limits the world to a very, very small subset. We are a founders fund, so we don't really compete on the same level, for better or worse, with a lot of the, uh, the best funds that are in Israel. We're happy to join them in some cases, sometimes lead earlier rounds, but we, we don't really compete with them. So within our niche, there aren't actually that many funds in Israel. I think, as far as I know, I don't think there is any like pure founders fund in Israel where all the partners are ex-founders and all the LPs, founders or ex-founders. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that this makes us better investors, right? First of all, this is yet to be proven, but also I can tell you for a fact that being an ex-founder is not necessarily an advantage over non-founder uh, VCs. Actually, the best examples that I have for, um, you know, the best partners in Israeli VCs that I, I can think of are not ex-founders. Maybe one of them is, but like most of them aren't. So it's not necessarily that we're better, but we're not really playing the same game. Like within the game that we're playing, I, I don't think that there are that many alternatives. We're like a founders fund, we're a group of good operators, or at least operators with a good track record. Uh, and in that sense, we don't really compete with anyone else. So that's what differentiates us. Like within, again, within the RGO, we're pretty much the only real pure founders fund. Um, and as far as the alpha goes, so again, this, this is like an ongoing, let's say, question I'm asking myself. But the best answer I have today is that we have three sources of alpha. 
Um, and these are like three distinct companies that we can invest in. And I'll try to give you uh, the reason why we have this alpha. So the first type of alpha is access. So within the Israeli ecosystem, and I wouldn't say that we have access to all companies. That's definitely not true. But within the Israeli ecosystem, there are some areas where we have access that's based on personal relationship that no one could get access without these personal relationships. So uh, one example, right? And this is just like something that comes to mind. Like there are other examples, but this may be one of the last time where I could rationalize that we're getting in based on pure access. So the head of unit 8200 in Israel, which is like the equivalent of the NSA in the US. So the head of that unit, plus the head of one of the uh, major cybersecurity centers within that unit, co-founded a company together, added post-exit founder, who sold a company to Oracle, and uh, someone doing product in Datadog. And they uh, founded a cybersecurity company. And immediately, like every serious investor wanted to get in on the round, they raised a ridiculous seed you know, back when it didn't actually look that ridiculous. But uh, uh, since then, they already raised round A. But like this was the definition of an oversubscribed round, right? Like the head of 8200 doing a cybersecurity company and, and with, like, with a really, really good team. The only reason we could get into this one was based on personal relationship, right? Like there is zero chance that, that in three, no matter how good we are and what value we bring, we could never get into this round. Obviously not lead it, right? It's just out of our league, but we can never get into this round without this personal relationship. So this is one subset of the market. And these opportunities are usually when this happens, these are in many cases, second timers. Usually these are big rounds and the companies are, I wouldn't say overvalued, but at least they're definitely not undervalued, right? So that's one subset of the world. The second subset of the world is companies that are uh, really, really early stage uh, and we can lead pre-seeds. The reason they're taking us is because we can generate a lot of value for them. That value is based on our ability and willingness to invest like unreasonable time with them. Right, some examples, one company we invested in, um, a company called Finaloop, they're doing automated accounting. We participated in the pre-seed, we actually took us a significant uh, part of it. And then uh, me and one of my partners in E3 sat with them for months. Like we were spending hours a day with them, helping them prepare to the next round to, to raise their seed, to build the company. We helped them recruit the CTO uh, and like, when they were missing one and so on and so on. So the thing is, you're wondering like, why can't anyone else do this, right? And the answer is because it's not cost-effective, right? It's not that we're doing this cost-effectively and no one else can. No one can do this cost-effectively. No other fund would ever spend hours a day for months and months with a portfolio company. It just doesn't make sense. You can't do this with 20 companies. You don't have enough time. The reason we can do this is because um, we never meant for in three to, to be cost effective. Right? And we can talk about it later, but it doesn't really make sense for us to do in three. And we're not trying to have it like done efficiently or cost effectively in any way. So knowingly not doing something cost effectively actually gives you an advantage in the sense that you can give them more value than, uh, than what anyone else can. So that's another kind of company. So if we know that there is a company where being very, very heavily involved in can generate them a lot of value. And we're the only ones that are willing to do this. And the third source of alpha at core, it has something to do with the second source of alpha. But the point there is we operate under a different risk profile from most other general partners. And, and I'll explain. So as a general partner in a VC, your personal incentive is essentially to make a lot of money from, from the carried interest. Right? Like the management fee is just, you know, again, for small funds, I'm putting aside crazy stuff like Tiger and all the uh, crazy multi-billion dollar funds where actually the management fee actually creates a, a weird incentive structure. But in a standard fund, the management fee just covers the expenses and, and what makes you the money is, is the carried interest, assuming that the fund is successful. And then as a general partner, most general partners in VCs, they're not there because they already made life-changing money. Being a general partner in a VC is their opportunity to make life-changing money. And then when you think of it from that perspective, they have two sort of competing incentives. One is they have to make really, really good investments and making all these good investments is usually requires them to make some contrarian decisions. 
The only way you can get venture scale returns is by sort of betting on something that everyone else thinks is weird, impossible, stupid, and so on. But then the other side of the equation is you can't really be wrong that many times before you lose the opportunity to invest other people's money. Right? Like you can be stupid once, you can be too stupid twice, but at some point you better make me some venture scale returns. Otherwise, you're just making stupid decisions and I'm not going to give you like, maybe I'll give you the second vintage, but you're not going to get this third vintage because eventually I want to see all your stupid decisions surface as, as really smart decisions. And so... When you look at it from a general partner's perspective, they want to make contrarian decisions, but not too con like they don't only want to make something that make that if it fails, make them look like completely uh, stupid. And from this means that they're not really risk neutral. So, for example, if I saw a company where I think that like ninety percent they're going to lose me all all the money to turn the investment into zero, but in the other ten percent they're going to make a thousand x on my money. Right, so this is a clear-cut decision, like clear-cut you want to invest. But as a, as a general partner that didn't already make life-changing money, this could be a bad decision just from, like, from a metagame perspective. You can't really make more than maybe one, two, or three of these in your career before it ends. So since we, like all of us in in already made life-changing money, and since all of our LPs already made life-changing money, and none of us and none of our LPs actually think of, like, in can't really make, like, realistically can't really make us life-changing money and whether in three succeeds or fails our lives will not be really affected this actually means that we can make uh, decisions that are risk neutral so the outcome of this is that we can invest in companies where if they succeed we actually get excessive returns and if they fail we just look like complete idiots but these again these are really really rare right maybe like in my maybe five years investing i think there are definitely two companies that fall under this uh, this model. Maybe there's one more, like from I don't know, a thousand companies I, I met. And then for me, whenever I think of a company and I have to make a decision whether I want to invest or not, I sort of try, I try to think of like which bucket of these three it falls under. If the answer is that it doesn't fall under any any of these, then it's not that I'm necessarily not going to invest, but it's a red flag for me. It means like like why am I seeing this deal? Like, why is it reasonable that I win this deal? Like, why is it smart to win this deal and so on? That's, again, a very, very long answer. But the thing is that I don't know if this thesis is correct, right? I mean, and again, as time goes by, I refine it. But I think if you ask most VCs, like if you talk to a VC, like a venture capital partner, and ask them, what, what is your alpha? You will hear bullshit answers. Like, seriously, you, you will hear bullshit answers. You will hear things like... Um, you know, we have access to the best companies in uh, in our domain. And it came, like from my experience, pretty much everyone sees the old companies. Um, we generate a lot of value. Everyone says this. Like I never heard a BC that says, um, no, I don't generate any value. You don't really get an answer that convinces you as an outside observer. Yeah, you're totally correct. I mean, every venture capital firm will tell you, like, you know, we help with biz dev, we help you raising your next round, and we help with finding talent. You know, how many of them actually do it? Not that many, but that's what they'll say. You mentioned life-changing money um, and that all your partners made and the LPs have made also. But for you specifically, what has life-changing money done to you? Psychologically, mentally, and I guess actual practically. For me, um, first of all, as I said before, this is one of the things that you have to experience because you can read about it. And what I'm going to say right now is, is a, like a generally accepted truth. But until you actually experience it, it's meaningless. But the truth is that people's happiness is um, essentially independent of their net worth within reasonable bounds, right? Like if you don't have any money to eat or if you're like constantly struggling to survive, then obviously it's difficult to be very, very happy. But generally once like the basic needs are taken care of and you don't really have to struggle on a day-to-day -day basis, then your happiness reaches uh, like a baseline. And then anything that happens to you, and this is like, a, again, an undisputed truth. It's it's part of the uh, research done by Kahneman and Tversky. I think it's part of their, the Nobel Prize that they won. It could be anything from winning the lottery, um, exiting your company, or losing a limb. Essentially, like all of these are just vibrations, and then eventually you return to the baseline. So in that sense, selling OpenRest, like uh, getting acquired by Wix, and or getting acquired in Kidaro by Microsoft, did not essentially change my baseline. I was a 
generally happy person before that, and I'm definitely happy now. It does give you more freedom. For me, the freedom I look for is being able to do what I want on a day-to-day basis. The shallow definition would be, I want to be able to control my calendar. I want to, to be able to decide uh, you know, what time I wake up every day and how does my calendar look like and, and so on. And being able to take a vacation, hop for two weeks to, uh, to wherever. So that's like this shallow definition. In practice, this doesn't happen. First of all, because life happens. So I have a three and a half year old. I don't control what time I wake up every day. And, you know, even, even if I don't have the morning shift, I just wake up early regardless. And my calendar is pretty much filled. I have back-to-back meetings almost every day. And although in theory, I could always cancel a day and just postpone everything. I don't do this. So in that sense, it's more like the illusion of freedom. But in a deeper sense, um, it means that I can do whatever I want. It's just that I really love doing what I'm doing. I really love meeting founding teams. I I love being intellectually challenged by these smart people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing. I love learning new things, but not just, you know, learning new facts, learning someone's thesis about how the world will behave in five to 10 years. And then I could agree or disagree with it, but it's always interesting. You just get a lot of really, really interesting things thrown at you. The life-changing part for me was just sort of like ensuring that the deep freedom, so like the the ability to decide what I want to do on a day-to-day basis. And then, you know, at any time frame, whether it's a year, five years, 10 years, I know that I'm in complete control of it. I I don't really have to uh, rely on any external source to be able to do what I want. And to me, this was really, really important. One of the reasons that I chose like to do OpenRest as a bootstrap company, not go the venture-backed path again, because once you found a venture-backed company, you lose a lot of that freedom. And it's not really a question of the mechanism, like the legal mechanism, you know, having someone with veto rights and so on. That's not the case, actually. It's about the moral obligation that you have towards someone else. Like you can't really decide once you go venture-backed, you don't really have full control of what you do. Yeah, totally. But how did you make sure that when you sold OpenRest or you sold Kadaro, you know, there's like this money just hit your bank account, money that you've never seen before? Almost like that feeling like, wait, you have to question yourself. Did I just rob a bank or something? Like, <laughs> um, we, we were lucky. I mean, in retrospect, we were lucky in OpenRest. The acquisition terms were pretty complex and included some money upfront, some money over time, some money based on milestones. And we had an earnout component, which was pretty large. Um, we also had, regardless to the sale, which was like 100% cash, but we had as senior employees of Wix, uh, we received options in the company. And when we joined Wix, Wix was worth about $600 million in the public markets. And when we left Wix, it was about $15 billion. So that uh, compensation by itself was pretty substantial. So the bottom line is that it didn't really hit us in like, we didn't really like get punched by millions of dollars, right? Like we slowly but surely over four years went from point zero to the end result. But I think there is something very stabilizing in this. And again, don't get me wrong. Like the day that we signed the deal, um, my partner who is a car enthusiast took me to the Porsche uh, car dealership and he pretty much bought his car on the spot from display. I'm not a car guy, so for me, uh, I still ride like a secondhand Honda Civic. But it's not that we didn't have that, you know, moment where we actually like we did this bank account wise. But this took like a few years, like for us to get the whole amount, and it was I think it was pretty good psychologically. How did you make sure that your friends' attitude towards you didn't change? That's a tough question. I mean, this is actually a really tough question. So first of all, I have a lot of friends and fall under different uh, categories and different groups. I have a group of people that I'm good friends with since the age of six. And like we went through our entire K-12 together and uh, I was in the army for five years. They all got honorably discharged after three years and then did their uh, gap year and came back and I was still in the army and so on. So this group of people is sort of like detached from the startup world. Each of them has their own jobs. Each of them took like a different direction in life. And in their case, this was a big deal. Like when we sold OpenRest, it was a really, really big deal. Then I have another group of people. There is some overlap within three who are, you know, friends from the army, friends from the startup ecosystem and so on. That A lot of them are founders. A lot of these are post-exit founders, whether this was before OpenRest or after OpenRest. And in this circle, 
this wasn't such an odd thing. It wasn't so, so extraordinary. Obviously, it was a really, really nice achievement, but it wasn't like something that uh, was completely out of day to day, right? You hear about people doing exits. And then there is the extended family, right? Which includes my family, my spouse's family, and so on and so on. And by the way, this also includes my spouse. It's actually like a really, really deep question. And the answer is, this is difficult. It's not clear what you're supposed to do in day-to-day situations, surely right after the exit. For example, you go with friends to a restaurant. Are you expected to pay? On one hand, I mean, it seems very, very logical. It's almost like rude not to. On the other hand, like this completely changes the relationship. I don't really want to pay for my friends. They're my friends, I'm not buying their time. So that's like one very, very simple occurrence where you start debating these things. At least initially, it takes time until you establish the new normal. In our case, we immediately told everyone, for example, when we did the exit party, we had a, like a nice exit party for OpenREST. So we did the party before we received the, the first check. We did it like in, in some pub and we were in a bootstrap company. So uh, we did like a bring your own bottle. And my friends are nine years after that. And my friends are still laughing at me that we, we let people buy their drinks in, in our exit party. But for us, it seemed really logical at the time. Like, like when we did this, we actually didn't have any extra money than the day before. It's a tough one. Like, how do you think about this? Uh, it's always interesting to hear people's uh, perspectives on this one. It's a tough question. I'm not in that position. So, you know, I can't really say what it's like until I'm there. You know, the famous thing, you can't judge someone to be actually in their own shoes. I'm not there. But I do understand um, the challenges that come together with it. And I think it's a very similar thing. It's like, you know, let's say being part of a community. If you grow up in a community, like in a real sense of community, not a startup community. I'm talking about a real community. You grow up in a real neighborhood. Um, and if you grow up in a neighborhood that's very diverse. So, for example, in my class, we had, for example, like the, the lowest income family in my class. And we also had like the richest kid in the community in my class, right? And all in between that. So how do people relate? So for example, let's say when you're growing up, you have a bar mitzvah, right? So you have very two different bar mitzvahs. You have the kid that's very, very wealthy, is throwing one type of party. And the kid that cannot afford such a, is throwing such a whole different type of party. And then as you grow older in life, so it's a very different challenge. Um, I think, like you said, friends that are friends are your friends. Right. So if a friendship is based upon something and that something goes away, some external thing, then there is no friendship. Right. But let's say, for example, if a friend becomes your friend because you're receive money now or to become your closer friend because you receive money, then that's not a real friendship because it's dependent upon something over there, which is the money part. Yeah. So if you were to take away that, you have to ask yourself, is there a friendship? I think the other thing is. You know, for example, I was recently speaking with a founder that had a substantial, also life-changing exit. And I asked him, if I were to remove this exit from you, remove this money from you, who would you be? And he said, honestly, I would be probably nobody, right? He's like, unfortunately, the money that I made, the exit that I have, bought me all this respect. So people ask me for my opinion now. I'm quoted in the news. People want my time. People think I have a thought opinion. And people think I'm obviously the smart person. But if you remove all these things from me, I'll be honest with you, if Ryan told me, I have low self-confidence, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really one hand is like knowing yourself, which is one part. And the other thing is knowing, you know, why people to essentially to a certain degree are, are trying to get to you. I think, and the other thing you have to look at it, which is say, for example, a Jewish perspective or in general, is that you have to look at yourself when someone makes money is that you're a custodian to the money. And I mean by that is that the reason why someone else makes money more than someone else, what I truly believe, and this is like a Jewish philosophy thing, is that it's because God essentially trusted you that you will do good with that money, that you will give charity to that money. So they they trust you that you have the ability right now in order to do something good with it. Now, yes, it's a challenge. I mean, you can always ask, what do you mean? We see all these wealthy people that don't do good with their money. That's a whole separate conversation we could talk about. But like, essentially, you're a custodian to do good with the money. And I think it goes back to what you said before in the Kahneman Torsky study, is that if you look at the fluctuation of happiness or not happiness, you know, is that private jet going to make you more happy? Is that Porsche going to make you happy? Yes, the one or two times that you drive it, the first few times it would drive it, but eventually at one point, the thing that you come accustomed to doesn't make you happy. 
But then I think you have to ask the other question is that, are you doing it for yourself or do you want to be seen as a person that's driving the Porsche? So people be like, oh, him, he's driving the Porsche. Oh, she, she's driving the Ferrari. So it's a very, you know, it's a great question and something to really think about, deeply think about because uh, I'll tell you where it creates friction, at least in, initially. So first of all, one thing, is, I don't think money changes people, but it does amplify a lot of their core traits. But one thing it does do is that it takes away some experiences or the ability to feel empathy towards some life experiences and it, it adds others. So for example, one common discussion point within France and in many cases is their mortgages, right? It's not like the most interesting or important thing to do, but it's, it's just like people sometimes, oh yeah, like I'm spending this and that on my mortgage. Oh, my uh, landlord is raising my rent and I, we need to find a new place or we need to negotiate with them and so on. Um, I'm flying abroad and uh, I found a flight which is cheaper, but I have to take the red eye and so on and so on. So um, these experiences now become detached from your reality. And in, in some sense, it's not as much as it's inconvenient for me to talk about them with my friends. It's equally inconvenient, I assume, for them to talk about them with me because it sort of like personifies the difference in the bank balance, right? Because when they tell me I'm flying the US and, oh, I wish I would flown business, right? So I can tell them something like, oh yeah, I mean, it sucks, right? But it doesn't come from empathy because I, I can't really, again, in this case, maybe that's not the case, but like in general, there are some experience where I can no longer relate with them, but also the opposite also applies. Let's say they tell me about a personal hardship that they have and that this hardship can be solved with money. I can only assume that it's inconvenient for them or even embarrassing to say this in the sense that they're genuinely not asking for help. But raising this, when we both know that, you know, this can be solved with a check, could be perceived as if they're asking for something. The thing is, the relationships I have in my life are usually long lasting in like 20 years and more. So in that sense, like these are people I feel super comfortable with. But at least initially, I felt that there were some friction points around these. Not in the sense that there was actually friction or decisions that I needed to make as much as no one knew the rules of the game. No one knew, like, we're now playing a different, a slightly different game, and no one was really sure about what's allowed and what's not allowed. So this is, at least initially, this is something that adds some friction and uncertainty, and it colors uh, existing relationships in a different way. I think one thing that, um, to add on to it, I think one thing that essentially could remove, from my perspective, I'm looking at it from the way you're describing it, is adding vulnerability to the conversation and you know being straight up and forward honest saying let's say for example someone's coming to you saying hey this is what i'm going to and i'm not asking for your money or whatever maybe be really honest and, and express vulnerability about the challenge um and if it's specifically related to money but i think the other thing is is that growing up in a the 21st century and in a very materialistic um, world where we put people that make money on pedestals right we forget about the aspect that at the end of the day yes that you know Danny might be rich, but that doesn't mean Danny has all the answers. Or that doesn't mean that Danny is going through his own personal emotional challenges. That doesn't have his own inner conflicts. Money's not going to buy you that, removing that. And or we look at entrepreneurs that have made it, or investors that have made it, or whatever it may be, or the you know, the Forbes 400 list or things like that. We forget about that whole entire thing that there's a whole nother money, just one equation to life, right? Yes, it helps a hundred percent, not even a question. Um, mm -hmm. It helps every single bit, but just one part of the equation of everything else that's going on in life. Yeah. And again, we, with that in mind, all of this is true. And the thing about this is, as I said before, this is something that you can read about. There are lots of studies sort of proving what, what we just said, but it doesn't really resonate deeply with you until you go through, like truly understand this. And with that in mind, I don't want to come off as a pretentious new age, you know, person full of shit. It's like... It's better to have money than not have money. Obviously, like <laughs> the choice, uh, more money is better. Yeah. Right? And I know that if anybody is going to make money or selling their startup and they're listening to this, definitely call Danny. Or if you just had a recent lump sum of money hit your bank account, call Danny for tips. <laughs> what are some of the things outside of um, startups or certain habits or patterns or things that you've done that you think have made you um, better in as a founder, as a um, partner, as a investing in things. Yeah. I, I know 
a lot of people who are really, really into self-improvement and they have all these you know, frameworks of how to better themselves and so on. Um, I'm, I'm so actually, you're, you're not, ta- you're not taking ice baths in the morning. You're not <laughs> meditating not. for 15 minutes. <laughs> I feel like most of what I do is not done intentionally in the sense that I have basic traits, which guide most of what I do. So I'm a very, very competitive person. It hurts me if I lose, it pains me. It's not even about winning. It's about like, just, I just can't conceive the option of losing. It's just, I hate it. And, you know, some people take this to a direction of um, abstinence. They try to not do anything where there is a possibility of losing. And in that sense, this is not conducive to success. In, in my case, this is not the case for me. I don't limit myself. I'm not afraid of losing. It's just that I hate it. But the outcome is that whenever I do something, I'm usually sort of obsessed about it. Whether it's founding a company, so like, all founders I know are obsessed about what they do, like all successful founders. And, and it's very PC and nice and uh, new agey to talk about work-life balance and stuff like that. And you know, once you reach a certain point of success, it's really nice to say that this is something that you care about. But I don't know any successful founder. Maybe there are. From my limited perspective, I don't know any successful founder who is not obsessed to the point of... of not living a full and wholesome life when their company was early stage. Like at some point, your company can be large enough, you can find product market fit, you can have a group of people helping you and so on. And if you're not struggling, which is also pretty rare, even in large companies, if you're not struggling and everything just goes up and to the right, then you can you know, take some time off and let the machine work. But initially, in order to build a machine, you have to be obsessed. Again, it's not even that you have to be obsessed. It's just there is a very, very strong correlation between obsessed people and those that can build a machine. And the thing about this trait is that from my experience, it's you can't separate it and, and apply it to just some aspects of your life. So in many cases, what you see, and this is like a common pattern, you see like founders who are extremely obsessed about some aspects of their lives and are completely negligent about others. Like there is no middle ground. So you can be like super obsessed about your company and super obsessed about, I don't know, your health or about optimizing some aspect of your life and then, um, you know, completely ignoring your family, which is like a common thing, not necessarily a positive thing, but a common thing you see. And in that, in that sense, I don't think it's like a cost effective or like an efficient behavior as much as it's just like a trait of successful founders. So in my case, right, I'm pretty obsessed about things that I care about. And like the main activity in my life at any point in time is usually something I'm pretty obsessed about. I hate losing. I try to surround myself with people who enrich my life. I'm looking for uh, relationships that enrich my life in various ways, whether it's intellectually, whether it's just, you know, the human connection, whether it's anything that I feel enriches my life, energizes me, um, basically that lifts me up rather than pulls me down. And again, it's not something I do intentionally. I don't have a framework of, you know, rating friends. It's just like a very, very natural thing. People who have this effect on my life, I tend to interact with more and others who don't, I tend to interact with less. Right. Uh, One thing I sort of like started doing recently, and again, it's a very, very privileged position because when I was founder in my own startup or my own company. I never really had time for this. But uh, as time goes by, I learned that having a routine around personal health and sports or any kind of physical activity is a good thing. So this is something I've been doing for the last maybe year or two years. One of the things you just mentioned now, I think you can essentially tie it back into something we said previously. Um, When you're talking about, you know, in three being four partners are all four former exit partners. And while you're talking about that, my mind ran to the aspect of comparing founders turned investors versus people that started their career focusing on investors. And I think there's essentially, like you're saying before, the way how you make decisions, but you have to have at least two people agree. I think founder turned investors, especially in a group of four people like you guys, have maybe more of... um, one hand, they could choose better winners, but also on the other hand, I'm not going to say detrimental, but it's more worse in the sense because like, you know, like you just mentioned, you have to have the obsession to win, right? So because you're founder turned investors, it seems like you have more of a negative eye towards other companies that you don't believe they have that winning ability. 
But that winning ability is being weighted against your own personal ability of what you think it takes to succeed based upon your own experience, right? So you have a, a bias as a founder to investor. I want to push back against something that you said. You said Please. it gives us, um, you said something like it gives us some advantage in picking the winners. And so I honestly don't think that being an ex-founder makes you a better investor. Right, correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because, yeah, I agree. Yeah. But, but I'm saying in, in like, with regards to what you said, again, there are some investors, usually not from the post, like not, not from the ex-founder type. Um, there, there is also like a cliche in venture capital where people say they only invest in people where they see as better than themselves, stronger founders than themselves, that they would work for that founder and so on. There are a lot of variations on the same theme. I personally don't sympathize with this at all. And again, I always say I'm a reasonably modest guy, right? I mean, I'm not, a, um, I have some reasons not to be modest and, and I have a lot of reasons to be modest, but uh, I'm a reasonably modest guy. Um, I honestly believe that if I only try to invest in people who I see as better than myself, I would have a very, very hard time investing in anyone. And the way I look at it is I'm not looking to invest in people who are better than myself. I'm looking to invest in people who I would hate to have as my competitors. So all of the teams that I'm super passionate about, that I was pushing for the investment and the team by itself place maybe slightly less weight on as part of the decision process than maybe a lot of others. But all the teams I'm very, very bullish about. The way I, I think about it is if I heard that these are my competitors, would I sleep well at night? Um, and the best teams are ones where I think about it is like, I don't know if they would win against me. Like, I don't know. The only thing I know is that we would both come out of like the other end of this experience different. Like we would both stare into the abyss. Like I would know that I have to give everything I have and then more in order to beat them. And they may know the same, like they may feel the same, but like, I honestly, like, this is something that I would hate to do. And there are teams that I meet and I'm thinking like the idea makes sense. The market is reasonable and so on, but the team, like I would just sleep like a baby. I would just wake up every morning with a smile and know that I'm going to crush them. <laughs> so, so. The teams where I would hate to be a competitor of are the kind of teams that they bring something to the table. In many cases, you can't really quantify it. Right? In, my, in many cases, it's that they have some kind of superpower that um, like is related to the task at hand. It's like that they're the most, it's not necessarily that they're the best teams per se. It's just that there is a really, really good fit between what's needed to win in this space and what they have or that they have some kind of superpower that um, maybe I don't have, right? And I think like if I would have to compete with them, like maybe I'd bring something to the table and they'd sort of like circumvent it by doing something else. So this is kind of like the way I think about it. And, and I agree that as founders, we think of it differently because I, I think a founder turned investor can't really escape this sort of thinking. Like you always think like, would I do their job better? What if they were competed against me? How would I do what they're doing? Like, and, and in many cases, I mean, in many cases, it doesn't matter as much. That's the sad truth. It's interesting because I never thought about it like that. I never, I've never heard it before. I mean, I've, I've spoken to who knows how many people. And it's the first time I've ever heard someone look facing it like that, that would I want them as a competitor? And if I want them as a competitor and there will be a, a fierce competitor, I will invest in them. I'm going to ask you another question that I'm assuming that, you know, these are the types of questions you don't like answering. Um, but if you had to look at a young Danny that's 20 years old, that's coming out of university or facing the world for the first time, and he has all the opportunities in front of him and he can choose whatever path it is. It's going down the startup investing or going becoming a founder or, you know, backpacking to Costa Rica for the rest of your life or something like that, or even working at a day-to-day -day job, which is totally okay. You know, what message would you want to give over to this young Danny that's starting? I literally have zero regrets in my life. I would probably say uh, invest in Bitcoin earlier. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> other than this, I'm really, really happy with where I am today and with the path that I went through. I, I don't really think any advice I, I could give a younger version of myself would make a difference for the better. And also, one of the things I learned, and this is a sad truth, um, there are things that you can't really teach. Right? There are things that you can tell someone that he's making a mistake, that she's making a mistake. You, you can say, uh, you can even explain why, and you can give lots of different frameworks. But 
the most basic trades, the most important decisions are usually they're done based on the state of mind that you're at. And by the way, this goes the other way around, right? I would never start open rest today. Like I know too much about the market and I know too much about like openers was in the restaurant space. It's a horrible, horrible space. And, and by the way, we didn't start it as a startup. It was a side project that just took off. But if I knew what I know today, I probably wouldn't start the side project. And, and this would be bad. This would actually make my life worse. So I don't know. I, th I think the only advice I give young people when they ask me, and this is what I usually tell people, is it's mostly about making sure that the best path to succeed in whatever it is that you want to do is to make sure that you're interacting with very, very good people, with excellent people. Um, and the, the ones that you see as excellent, see you as excellent. If that happens, then good things will happen. So this requires that at your core, you, you have some excellence in you. And you can be excellent in many, many different things, right? You can be an excellent manager, an excellent developer, an excellent salesperson, but you have to excel in whatever it is that you're doing. And you need excellent people to know that about you. And excellent people are ones that you think are excellent. So usually the problems with like that people encounter with this uh, approach is one, they might say, uh, in, in some cases they say, the problem is that wherever it is I am today, I don't have these people. If I worked at Google or Amazon or Microsoft or whatever, I would be surrounded by all these great people that I could prove my worth to them. But wherever it is that I am, I'm now working at an entry-level job doing something in wherever where no one around me is someone I consider as excellent. In that case, my advice would be to change whatever it is that you're like to change location, to go somewhere else, to go work in a different organization, even take a like an entry-level job or, or maybe just, you know, bite the bullet and say, all right, I'm doing this for a year to gain some experience and then I can go to a place. But eventually you want to be in a place where there are excellent people. And the second problem would be um, I can't prove to them that I am excellent. In that case, usually it's about, you know, either you try harder or you try something else. Like maybe you're not an excellent developer, but you're an excellent product person. Maybe you can excel at sales. Maybe you, I don't know, maybe you can do all that. But, but eventually you have to find something that you excel in. If you can't find it, then you're out of luck in my framework. I have no framework how to make non-excellent people succeed. Excellence and these things are is something that you have to have within and you have to really truly want it. Like you said, it requires sacrifice too. And you have to be willing to make that sacrifice. You have to be willing to go through that pursuit of excellence. And you know, and there's no stage that you're excellent. It's a constant ongoing process, a constant, you know, thing. Um, Danny, you know, I, I could talk to you for hours. Wow, like I really, really could. And for all the listeners that are listening to this point, you know, please send an email to me at Ephraim at 1000 hires that's 100 hires or you know send me a LinkedIn message that you're listening to this point until now and obviously send me the feedback about that but Danny I have learned so much so far and I know this is the first of many many questions and I think if I had to summarize it and you know some of the points that I have received and got from you is that there's a few underlying things I see one that um, there is no answer there is no answer at all no one has a right answer and there's no answer. And you have to go through that own experience in order to come to your own answer, your own correct conclusion. No book, no hypothesis or something like that's going to teach you and help you. You have to go through the process yourself. And only then when you're there, then you have to gather the data and, if, and then you can make the, the right decisions. Um, I think the other thing I learned from you a lot currently right now is you mentioned, you know, you don't like self-help books or you don't follow any type of like, you know, um, you have frameworks, but you don't have like set values. You know, I think a lot about that is when, it, when I hear it from you, the way I take it and understand it for myself is that you have to become your own person and learn what works for you. Meaning just because this person is a quote unquote guru said that if you take an ice bath every single day, these are the benefits. Or if you do this, every day, yes, that might work for him, but not necessarily is that going to work for you? So learn from, from yourself. And two other points I learned is when you talk about competition that you hate to lose, and we didn't actually touch upon failure yet, but I think when you say you hate to lose, it means also you're not afraid to fail in order to make sure you don't lose. And sometimes you might be down, but you pick yourself up and you continue. And then obviously, I think the biggest thing is just stay humble. Stay humble, have a lot of humility. And then be open to opportunities and you'll see where life takes you. And I think those are the things that I personally have learned 
And obviously the real work now is implementation. But I want to thank you so much because I know so many people are going to benefit from this conversation um, a lot, a ton of people. So I am so grateful for it. Cool. Awesome. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and you're able to take something out to apply to your personal or professional life today. Remember, the mission of the Founder Stories podcast is to provide to you with the most incredible conversations possible so you can get inspired. Now, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review because when you leave a review, you are doing your part in helping other people come across and find this podcast. Now, if you have any suggestions, ideas, or feedback, or anything else you'd like to tell me about this show, please email me at afrayim at 1000hires.com or find me on LinkedIn at Afrayim Yarmak. I very much look forward to hearing from you and I hope you have an awesome, awesome week.